You are listening to a Heartland podcast. On last year's Heartland, Rasmus Boserup met with Natasha Lindstedt to discuss the future of democracies and autocracies. In front of a live audience in the festival's Future Talks tent, the two participants present how they view the status of the world in terms of separation of power. Rasmus Boserup is the executive director of Euromed Rights, an organization that represents 80 human rights organizations that focuses on strengthening human rights and democracy reforms in Europe, the Middle East and Northern Africa. Boserup has previously worked as an academic researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies and has written several books on Danish foreign policy and the Arab Spring. Natasha Lindstedt is a professor of the University of Essex and is an expert on authoritarian regimes, international development and third world politics. She has written several works about dictatorships, corruption and failed states. She is frequently used as an expert on networks such as CNN, BBC World and Al Jazeera. In this conversation, the participants discuss how many places in the world is moving further and further away from democracy and towards a centralization of power. Why are autocrats such as Putin and Erdogan gaining more and more power and what happened to the Arab world after the Arab Spring? These are some of the questions the participants attempt to answer and discuss. This conversation is a part of Heartland's Future Talks, which are created to invite scientists and theorists into the public conversation and make us all care and take interest in the future. The conversation is moderated by Danish journalist and TV host Clement Kjerskov. Future Talks 2019 was supported by Lundbygfonden. We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Heartland Podcast. Okay, is the sound the way it's supposed to be? Right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you and welcome. Thank you, Natasha, for traveling all the way to Denmark. Thank you, Rasmus. Rasmus has just uh, started a new job, and we're so pleased that both of these distinguished talkers, speakers can join us here today. Now, what we are going to discuss, you really could say, is the biggest question of our time, one of the most important ones when we look ahead to the next 10 or 20 or 30 years of world history. And the fact is, of course, that what we have seen over the last 30 years is that world history is not to be predicted. If anyone believes that the world is moving in one direction with any degree of certainty, they are sure to be disappointed. This is what happens. It happens when the Eastern Bloc is broken up and the Berlin Wall falls. It happens when you have an Arab Spring in the Middle East where people, millions of people around the world are thinking, well, This can only end in one way. No, it can't. It can end in many ways. It can develop in many ways. This is what we've seen in the UK with Brexit. It's what we've seen in the US with the presidential election in 2016. And indeed, it is what we're seeing around the world. So talking about autocracy, talking about dictatorships, talking about power, how power is wielded, how it is abused, how it is used by others is really the central issue here. And what we will do is we will hear from our two speakers. Each of them has been given a few minutes to open the discussion. So you will hear them talk, explain their points of view. And then we will, just as Abdel mentioned, open for your questions, comments from the floor. 
If you are not comfortable asking the questions in English, please feel free to do it in Danish. We'll translate for our speakers. Hvis der er nogen af jer, der gerne vil spørge på dansk i stedet for engelsk, skal I bare gøre det, og så oversætter vi og samler op løbende undervejs. And that's it, I think, Natasha. The floor is yours. And you, of course, as Abdel mentioned, you are an expert on these issues. The question, of course, for you as for Rasmus and for everyone else is, will autocrats rule the world? Please. Okay, thank you very much. That's fine, yep. Okay, right here? Sure. Okay, sorry, I'm still trying to figure out where to stand. Um, it's still nice to see so many people interested in dictatorships. Uh, I didn't. I didn't realize that this would be this popular. Uh, I, yes, I've been studying dictatorships for a long time now, but I've been really, really busy uh, with the rise of Trump. Uh, and so we're going to show the first clip if we can. Sure. Vladimir Putin, Saddam Hussein, Mussolini. Sometimes the people that you most distrust turn out to be the most honorable ones. My honor, and uh, we will have a terrific relationship. It's an honor to be with you. Very great honor. Thank you. He was really very gracious. We have developed a, a very special bond. We shouldn't have destabilized Saddam Hussein. The world would be better off with Saddam Hussein. 100%. He was really good at killing terrorists. He didn't wait around. You know what he did well? He killed terrorists. He did that so good. with President Putin and congratulated him on the victory, his electoral victory. If Putin okay, likes Thank Donald Trump, clip. guess what, folks? That's called an asset, not a liability. Putin Thanks. has we much better. And the clip? Yeah, great. Okay. We could go on and on because he loves dictators so much. Um, but I thought that was a useful starting point because we're seeing something that's really alarming in the U.S., something that's known as autocratization. You may have heard of it as democratic backsliding. Um, and, and this is a growing trend. Actually, 2.3 billion people are affected by autocratization which is this slow sort of process of becoming increasingly autocratic. It can hit democracies, it can hit already authoritarian regimes, or it can hit uh, these gray zone regimes in the middle. Um, but this is the most common form of an, a, a democracy breaking down. Um, in the past, like the past 50 years, the most common form of a democracy breaking down was a coup. In fact, 64% of all democracies broke down by a coup. But today we're seeing autocratization is becoming more and more of a problematic trend. Uh, some of the other trends that we're noticing is like dictatorships are lasting a lot longer than they used to. So, I don't know, the last 40 years or so, they used to last only 14 years. Today, they last a little bit over 20 years. Uh, and there's reasons, of, you know, reasons for that, what I'll explain in a second. The other thing is that there's a rise of personalism. So in the clip, we see this very, you know, all this praise coming from Donald Trump of all these different personalistic style leaders. And so what do I mean by personalism? These are leaders that want to rule by themselves. They don't really want a military that's very powerful. They don't want a single party that they can rule with. They want to rule with an iron fist completely by themselves. They want to surround themselves 
with sycophants and people that are loyalists and they're gonna tell them what they wanna hear. They don't tend to surround themselves with anyone that has much expertise. And, and they try to tell everybody that they're almost like some sort of messianic type of figure. It's them, uh, it's, it's only they that can resolve all your problems. They are the savior and they can personally resolve everyone's problems. And they tend to be very polarizing types of figures as well. So we're seeing a rise of personalism where it was somewhere in the last several decades, 23% of countries were seeing personalism or personalist style of rule, and now it's up to 40%. We're also seeing that autocrats are becoming more aggressive in pushing their norms. In, they're not just happy with the status quo and just saying, okay, I just want to be stable, we want to maintain ourselves in power, we don't really care what other regimes are doing. They're actually actively getting involved to undermine elections um, in hybrid regimes, in autocracies, um, in democracies even. Uh, and so they're pushing uh, their norms with much more fervor than they have in the past. And they're cooperating with each other much more than they used to in the past. I mean, before, uh, you know, there was some cooperation with countries that may have shared similar economic um, policies and so forth. But now we're seeing very, very high levels of cooperation between autocrats about how to help you stay in power. You know, we'll help you cheat the electoral commissions that are here to monitor the elections. We're gonna help you figure out what types of rules you need in order to ensure that you stay in power indefinitely. Uh, and so one of the reasons why autocrats are staying in power longer than they used to be is because they figured out something really interesting. So we used to have more regimes that were just authoritarian, just straight up authoritarian. So back in 1972, three-fourths or 75% of all the regimes in the world were authoritarian. Today we don't have that. You know, we have actually 55% uh, are, de are democratic and then we have a lot of countries that sort of fall in this nebulous area. And there's not as many as fully autocratic regimes. But what we do have is just this decay of democracy and also these autocrats that are pretending to be democrats. And what they're doing is they're utilizing democratic institutions. So it looks like, oh wait, they just held an election. That's fantastic, that means they're gonna democratize. But that's not what's happening at all. In fact, they're using the elections to justify their rule so that they can basically be in power indefinitely. And in fact, they've been able to use democratic institutions so successfully, uh, we're seeing that that's one of the reasons why they're lasting uh, longer than ever before. So there's a lot of things going on in the world today that are alarming. Um, another thing is that we're seeing in countries that used to be authoritarian, but have become democratic, we have high levels of authoritarian nostalgia. So we know this from survey research. We've seen this in countries, particularly in Eastern Europe, uh, where they're surveyed to ask them about how they feel about democracy, and a lot of them have you know, very high levels of nostalgia for the previous regimes. It didn't even matter if they were incredibly repressive. They're romanticizing the past. The another thing that we're seeing that's interesting is that there are people that are living in authoritarian regimes. They may have elections. They may have political parties. So for example, like a country like Singapore that's had the People's Action Party in power for decades now. They surveyed people in Singapore, you know, do you live in a democracy? And over two thirds said they did, um, with even a small percentage saying they thought they lived in a liberal democracy. And so we have a lot of regimes where the people living inside of them have a complete misconception about what's democracy or what's an autocracy. Uh, and then the alarming trend, which we were kind of showing <clears throat> with the clip of Trump 
uh, is that there are some levels of democratic deconsolidation taking place. Not necessarily taking place everywhere. You know, still we have most of the countries are democratic in the world, but countries like the US, Brazil, India, and that's why you know, it's affecting so many people, as I mentioned in the beginning, are experiencing some deconsolidation in, in that there's just very high levels of polarization, and this is leading to people acquiescing, being willing to accept authoritarian alternatives. I don't know if I'm supposed to finish now. No, yeah, okay, just a moment. One, one more moment. Um, I, I'll, I'll land with a statistic about Trump. Um, just because I mentioned him, and you may be able to tell I'm American. Um, so, 66% of Trump diehards say they are willing to have some sort of autocratic rule if that meant that they could get what they want. And then of that, 55% of Republicans said, yeah, that they would agree with that. That's alarming. That's scary. And that's the result of polarization. Of, of the 24 countries in this last year that were backsliding, 18 of them were experiencing really high levels of polarization. And we're seeing that's one of the big driving factors. And I know we're going to get into it in the Q&A in a little bit, more about the role of globalization, technology, social media, and what role that plays in you know, leading to this, what we're referring to as the third wave of autocratization. Okay. So what you're describing, Natasha, essentially is, is you're describing, here. sure, okay. um, you're describing more than one gray area. Is, the, is that right? You're saying this is not just sort of the old autocracies, our notion of what an autocracy or dictatorship look, looks like. You're saying something new is happening. And even with Trump, you were seeing within a democracy, within a liberal democracy, a large part of the electorate saying, we actually make an informed choice that we would prefer an autocracy to what we have now. Right, that's the process of autocratization that is so scary. So it used to be a coup, as I said. The mm. military would come in, they would mm. take over, and it was very quick and easy, and, and you know, it really didn't have anything to do with the public. Now it is that people are, through referendums, through elections, voting willingly for more autocratic rulers. We see it in Brazil, we see it in Turkey, we see the way people are supporting Trump at any cost. Uh, and so we're seeing people... Uh, due to polarization, due to feeling like I just cannot accept the alternative right now. It's mm. just too awful for me. I prefer to have what's safe, what makes me feel secure. Uh, and they're willingly voting for this auto autocratization to take place. And, and to some extent, there is sort of an inspiration flow taking place as well, isn't there? You see Trump, uh, you know, inspiring others. You see um, things happening maybe in Poland and Hungary. Other people will look at these countries and, and take inspiration from it. So there is a, there's a, a, a strange sort of global or international sense in which this is you know, uh, spreading or interlinked. Well, they're learning from each other. I think that, I mean, you've heard the word fake news, a word we didn't know about a couple of years ago being used all the time, mm. uh, that uh, a dictator adopted, uh, you know, dictators have adopted. I mean, I think in, in Syria, Assad adopted saying fake news, that's fake news. So that's just a way of delegitimizing the, the, the media. That's one of the big tools that autocrats use in the beginning. You know, they sometimes may be the media darling, then they decide they're going to delegitimize it and act like anything that is said is just completely fake. All right. Rasmus, your turn. Please, the floor is yours. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Natasha, for, um, for bringing us on stage with this uh, complicated global issue. 
I think um, as was said in the beginning, my main focus when I work with autocrats and autocracies in general is the Middle East. I spent, I had the joy of living in a couple of autocracies for uh, almost six years. Morocco, Egypt, Algeria, a lot of these Middle Eastern classic hardcore military autocracies where things are felt in the daily life. And I'm going to show you a clip in a second, which uh, comes from a Middle Eastern context. But before doing that, I have like one general comment or a couple of general comments. I think, I mean, the overall question of are the autocrats then going to rule the world that we are discussing? I'd say it's a yes and no thing we're into here because probably and pretty surely they, are, they will be around. They are there and they're expanding and they're pushing back towards us much more aggressively than we've seen for a ver quite a long while. And this is what we see in a variety of settings. Iranian plots in Copenhagen or Culling or wherever that was, uh, fighting between uh, autocrats in the Middle East that also has, we could say, pushbacks outside of their own courtyard. So the autocrats are much more active. They use a variety of tools we didn't know before, economic power from the Chinese, even the Moroccans are very good at that in other parts of the world but also classic opportunistic strategies like the Russians intervening in Syria. There's a chance to basically destroy some of the stuff that democracies do, so they do it. So there's a push on democracies today that is obviously there, tangible and visible. So they are there, and they are more forcefully there than they were before, I'd say. On the other hand, are they then going to rule the world as such? I'm much more in doubt about that. And I'd say that science seems to be pretty split on that whether we are seeing a large curve of democratization that just has like a small dive, or whether the small dive that we're experiencing that Natasha talked about is actually the beginning of a deep slope where we're gonna sort of regress into autocrats basically ruling the world. And I, as I read the, the literature on it, there are these two different views. One is a very long historical one, and another one is a short 10-year span with massive and, or let's say, sneaking, but systemic and constant pushbacks against democracy. And this was what Natasha talked about. And I think that's uh, important to keep in mind that we don't know really where this is gonna end. But if we look at the trend, the trend that pushes autocracies uh, forward right now, where we have expansions in Latin America and Africa, in the Middle East that I work with, in Europe as well, and in US, of course, then the question comes to mind of um, how how is this really affecting our lives? And I think um, one of the things that would be interesting for us to pick up is this question of how are we going to position in ourselves in our foreign policy in Europe when we look at this sort of sneaking autocracies at the inside, obviously, but also the push on European core values of democracy, human rights, and so on. Now, um, I think there's a par paradox in the current trend in the short 10, 12 years trend where we see autocrats pushing us further. And the paradox is that we know historically that autocracies are relatively unstable. When I look at my region, autocrats are constantly pushed back by their own populations. I mean, the Arab Spring was just one Arab series of uprisings. They're systemic. There are constant pushbacks against autocratic rules. They have very little popular legitimacy the sort of the general demobilization of the public from political institutions is clear all over when you have autocrats. 
their economic performance in the Middle East is relatively poor, depending on where you look. Now, I know there's China, which apparently performs, and it's an autocracy, but in general, autocracies are not very good at performing economically. There's a lot of corruption coming with it, crony capitalism and other issues that basically limit their ability to produce. And they constantly crash. When I look at Middle Eastern history over the last 50 years, we have a continuation of autocracies that are basically reviving themselves all over and over again and constantly crash. And the Arab Spring a couple of years ago was just one of these crashes. It was a simultaneous one and for that reason pretty important, but it was one in a long row. Now, I can go on for this for a very long while, but I think we, before we get to the explanations, I want to just put a clip up here, and it's a clip that went viral th three years ago when the, the Egyptian autocrat per se, the biggest autocrat perhaps that we have currently living and ruling in the Middle East, it's discussable, there's a lot of them, but uh, President Abdel Fattah Sisi, and it's a, it's a clip that was made in 2016 and had a lot of views back then because it pinpointed something deep about one, what is autocracy, two, how do we look at it, and three, um, how do we as international community relate with it. So could we have the clip? It's one minute. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, this clip, I mean, I always get a little bit of a laughter on it when I see it. I've seen it a lot of times because it reminds me about what autocracy is also all about and what our discussion on autocracy is about. And let me just start with this issue of what our discussion about autocracy is all about. I think there's a lot of Orientalism in this clip. There's a lot of European egocentrism. We have culture, they don't. Arabs are brutal, they brutalize culture. We don't, we can play it clean, they play it destructively. Whenever they touch culture in the Arab world, it's just so simply unbearably embarrassing. Now this is classic Orientalism, like the idea that Europe is better than the rest of the world. But it's also true what's going on in this clip. And I think this is the dilemma that somehow always was around Orientalism, that it took some stereotypes and sort of grasp them out of proportions. But what is true about this clip is that autocrats 
are not very good at producing culture. Autocracies have a tendency to produce culture that is purely propagandist. It is extremely <laughs> void of content. If you look at Algerian national TV, it's all folklore. They dance in these uh, robes and uh, they sort of, uh, how can I say, celebrate their classic traditional culture. There's very little etchy culture. There's very little critique in the culture that is allowed to live in autocracies. And to some extent, this clip nails this. I don't know who did the clip, but I have a feeling that it's probably done by some Egyptian activists for the single reason that the way that we could say critique is typically expressed in autocracies is through humor and ridicule of the autocrats. And this is what's going on here. This is why it's more than just Orientalism. This is that view, the West is better, we have democracy, they don't in our debate which is sort of mirrored here, but there's also that sort of true thing that they're actually really bad at producing good culture in autocracy. And I say this as somebody who has lived in autocracies for a long while, and I really adore and admire a lot of my Egyptian, Algerian, whatever friends, but the systems as such, and this is an Egyptian army orchestra, so you don't get anything more system, is really bad at producing culture. And I wanted to bring that sort of meta-reflection in. I think there's one more point in this that I just want to bring in. The idea that uh, we are there with them. We are not just there sort of watching them, but we are there standing beside them, cherishing them, working with them. And we are there for a reason. This was from 16. And the clips that were shown and mixed together were almost all from 14, 15, and 16, or 15, 16, I think. Meaning right after the refugee crisis, as we called it, this fact that uh, some migrants were walking, walking down the streets of Europe. And at least two of the state leaders, Macron, well, sorry, it's not Macron, it was Hollande, the French uh, president, and obviously Merkel is still serving, uh, German president, uh, Kanzler, um, that they were down in Egypt trying to sort of work with the Egyptian regime and trying to basically strike out deals that could limit the amount of refugees we get in, and hopefully, as Trump put it in Natasha's clip, help us do counter-terrorism. So it also nails our basically... How is it? The way we have to work with it. And you can see the faces of these people, and I think that's what catches our current moment where we are. We have to work with them. Although we don't like them, I don't think there's any joy to be seen in, in, in the faces of these European leaders when they have to stand next to a known autocrat with the torturers and the, and the excessive repression of the Egyptian civil population behind him. But they know they have to work with them because Europe has lost its, you could say, leading role. And by putting ourselves next to them, we also have a dilemma of how are we going to deal with all these autocrats that expand and push on in the world. Perhaps we can discuss that more. So thank you. Now, Rasmus. Hmm? Now, back when the Arab Spring uh, uh, suddenly arose, back in 2011, I remember uh, one Middle Eastern expert after another, one politician after another, saying we've never seen anything like this. We don't know what will happen. We don't know what will happen in the Middle East. We don't know what will happen in Tunisia and Egypt and Syria. But things can never go back. That was one of the things said in the spring <laughs> of 2011. Now, what happened to that? What happened to the sense at the time that uh, because of the technological development, because of things happening in society, because of globalization in one sense or another, things could not go back. Have they gone back? Because I think what Natasha described and what you are describing is, is, is something new, right? It's, an, it's a new phase. It's autocracy, but in another form. Sure. 
I think, I mean, going back is like in the massive metaphor when you speak about these enormous societal transformations that mm. the Arab Spring, for instance, was. But it's no, it's no secret, right, that uh, if we look at the Middle East, there is only one possible democracy, and this is Tunisia. The rest is just uh, autocracies in a variety of shapes. Some of them are basically not even autocracies. They're neither democracies nor autocracies. They're completely collapsed states with several governments that are competing and so on. But uh, in that sense, obviously, we didn't go forward if forward means democracy. Mm. I think the current moment in the Middle East somehow epitomizes the feeling that the idea that I grew up with and probably many of us in this room grew up with that democracy would win in the end, mm. that narrative definitely died in the Middle East with the Arab Spring or sort of the end of the Arab Spring from 13, 14, 15 and the last couple of years where we saw autocrats basically either stay in power via all of the tools described by mm. Natasha, or basically grasp power by classical coups like in Egypt. So, so definitely, in that sense, we couldn't have imagined a more regressive, uh, right. put it. On the other hand, and I think that's important to keep in mind, we just right now have two revolutions going on in the Middle East against autocrats. The Algerian one, 100% uh, peaceful, millions of people in the streets, again, Surprised it was now and not five years ago. Mm. There's an explanation to that if you dig deep into it. And Sudan, where you have the same massive pushback by the population against illegitimate and poorly ruling autocrats. And I think that was why I started out saying this is systemic. Aut mm. Autocracies are weak. We know it. Yet, in some configuration, they're able to stay in power and keep their position, although they are constantly challenged by revolts, by protests, by terrorists, by mm. whatever you want. All right. In a moment, we'll open up for questions and comments from the floor, so be ready to raise your hands and, and do note that we only have uh, something like 15 minutes for questions and debate. So please take the opportunity. Now, Natasha, in terms of what, what Rasmus was just saying, um, what is really the advice for civil society? What is the advice that one could give uh, uh, young people living in Egypt or living in, 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 in one of these places and saying, well, this is your best hope, this is what you should work for, this is the difference you can make? I mean, the, the advantage of people forming civil society groups. Yeah, uh, or in, in any way, getting shape involved. or form. Yeah. I mean, but that, I think, was one of the issues with the Arab Spring is that there was such high levels of repression for so many decades that there wasn't that many openings for people to form groups, form associations outside of religious groups. Uh, and so as a result, it wasn't that well organized. I mean, the, what ended up happening in Egypt was the best organized party was the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm. Um, every, all these other groups that were very anti, uh, they could have been anti-Mubarak, anti-corruption, anti-authoritarianism, didn't really have a chance to form, to build trust, um, to discuss ideas, to form policies. I mean, that's a big aspect of civil society is that people can come together and start talking about things, start talking about what they want, what policies they want, democracy, uh, and then they can do it in a more controlled fashion rather than have these sort of erratic protests. And there's a room for protests, of course, but where things are more organized, where they can channel what their interests are, and then they don't get completely um, f fragmented, where it's just very easy to kind of take advantage of... Uh, the fragmentation, which often you know leaders are able to do. So civil society is you know one of the building blocks of democracy, of course, but a lot of it is about helping people organize, channel their interests, and communicate their their so, viewpoints. So essentially, you're saying in societies where there's no history of civil society, or where this is something that goes back, you know, and hasn't been there in 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 a modern form for 50 years, 70 years, maybe maybe ever, it's very difficult to start that process from scratch. It's definitely.
extremely difficult. I mean, that is one aspect of it. The other, of course, is what um, what experience you might have had with institutions, mm. with the, with just even holding elections, with with having a, a political party, with a, a legislature, with a judiciary. And this varies from country to country. I mean, you've given the example of Tunisia, which had had some experience with parliamentary politics decades ago. Uh, so it wasn't a completely foreign thing where you have other countries where they have had really, I mean, speaking of some of the monarchies with ex the exception of Kuwait, mm. uh, which has a, had a parliament since the 1960s, uh, you know, they don't have this kind of experience of these kind of practices. And, and that, you know, just takes time to build. I think that's one of the misconceptions about democracy is that authoritarian breakdown will happen. Mm. And then a democracy will emerge. It, it takes years, decades, you know, sometimes even longer than that for these institutions to build, for, for the political culture to develop to where they really want democracy and they're interested in fighting for it and, and that they're willing to, to deal with the transition. Because any transition mm. from authoritarian rule is one of the most violent, unstable periods. It can lead to a lot of economic chaos and disarray. And people may have their expectations really high about yeah. democracy is going to bring something. Uh, and so often the political culture has to be very certain that democracy is all that we want. We don't want to experiment with anything else. Um, and, and that doesn't really happen overnight. Culture moves very slowly. All right. Questions, comments from the floor? There's yeah, one, a, a one over here. Came in. Yes, please. And if yeah. you just state your name. Uh, yeah, can hi. Go. My yes. name is Moran Hesner. And uh, I've been following the situation in Turkey for quite a while. I was living there uh, some years ago, studying there, and from Erdogan was this very popular mayor in Istanbul. He has really become a different person in some ways. And um, this question is more for Rasmus, because I know that this is your expertise. So I would really like to hear your comment on the whole situation between Europe and Turkey right now, between Europe and Erdogan. So do you think that Europe will have the courage to push back on him, also given the current right. refugee situation? Great question. Awesome. Yeah, excellent question. And I think it actually captures exactly where I ended with, the, with my presentation. And no, I don't think Europe has particularly will to push back against uh, the unfolding and uh, expanding autocracy of uh, Erdogan that you're correctly uh, assessing there. I, I think we, we all know why, to the extent that this is all about the migration deal. And uh, as long as migration remains the key, you could say, domestic policy driver in Europe, then it's very, very hard to see how any European leader, including the core Brussels uh, policy-making elites, should convince themselves that uh, pushing hard on, on Erdogan is, is a smart way for it. They simply don't dare to jeopardize that particular nexus. But they know very well that what's going on in, uh, in Turkey is uh, blatantly autocratic in nature. Maybe it was all right to push back against the coup in the beginning. There was this coup attempt a couple of years ago, right? And, uh, and, and I was at least amongst those saying that any leader will probably imprison quite a lot of people and try to figure <coughs> out who planned that coup. <laughs> yeah, are you interrupting yeah, me? I'm fine. No, no. <laughs> um, so, so in that sense, I, I'd say maybe in the beginning that was fine, but it's clear now that something else is going on. There's a consolidation of his power 
base and and, uh, so, and, and Europe is not the one that's going to stand up uh, strongly against that, I think, unfortunately. And I think it's all linked to the migration deal that we cannot really push on that one. Previously, we were we had a more sort of critical stance towards Turkey, but we don't really... But has it become more politically correct, Natasha, for a European government to go out and say, we will do a deal with Erdogan, we will, we will do this deal knowingly, willingly, we'll, we'll admit to what everything Rasmus has just said, simply by saying... Uh, stopping the migration flow, stopping the refugees, that's a more important point for us. So so just in terms of actually admitting to what we are doing or the kind of deals we are striking, has that become politically correct in a way it wasn't, say, 10 years ago? I, I actually think Western governments for a long time have supported authoritarian regimes when it suited them. When it didn't suit them, then they became very, very critical of them the way we are, you know, for obvious reasons why we're critical of North Korea or different rogue states that we've identified as um, dangers or threats to uh, stability. There have been all kinds of historical cases and less, even more recent cases where there are really strong bonds between democracies and dictatorships when it suits their interests, when they trade with one another. Uh, maybe their leaders have good personal relationships. I mean, obviously the height of this now is, you know, the clip I showed about Trump and how much he loves sure. some of these dictators, how much he loves Putin and Kim and how much he loves, uh, I think most notably, the, the Saudi uh, crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, I mean, the relationship between the West and Saudi Arabia, this is probably one of the most authoritarian regimes in the entire world. Um, in terms of human rights violations, it's absolutely atrocious, but it's been so close with the West for, for decades. And, you know, people didn't want to take their photo with um, bin Salman at the mm. G20 event. But that was about it. All right. Next question, please. Yes. Um, um, that I think this question is most for you, Natasha. Uh, I don't think you really... A little, a little closer to the mic, maybe. Okay. I don't think you're really touching the dilemma here, because couldn't that be sometimes better with a, a good dictator than a bad democracy? Like, couldn't it be that Sisi, for instance, is better in Egypt than the alternative? Um, so you're I saying really that, that maybe you, you mentioned Egypt, that Sisi is better than the alternative? Yes. All right. And, and uh, also, uh, perhaps elaborate a bit more about the... The, you sometimes are only descriptive instead of normative. Elaborate on what? No, uh, I'm sorry, more, could, could is get, it a normative position you have, or is it only a description of how things are going? All right. Okay, but let's just try, the, the, because the, the first question to say, maybe a good dictator, a benevolent dictator, an efficient dictator, whatever, may be better than a democratically elected government. Is that, is that impossible to imagine? Yeah, it's definitely true, because you can look at a country like Singapore, which it does have elections, but it's had the same party in power for, for decades now, mm. and there are other autocracies as well in Southeast Asia have the same um, party in power and that have been able to perform uh, well on um, you know, their economies. I mean, you could say a lot of things about China, but it did lift 400, 500, some say 600 million people out of poverty, which is yeah. no small feat. Uh, so there are definitely some authoritarian regimes uh, that know how to grow economically that are going to provide more stability. I mean, if you were to look at Iraq today and when it was under Saddam Hussein, you could make the argument it's been so unstable uh, since um, Saddam Hussein came to power. Of course, you can argue about all the horrible things that he has done. But there's, a, there's a gray zone, isn't there, to the, to the extent... I mean, I remember with the Arab Spring, for instance, the argument was made back then that you had people in the middle class in Egypt or in the middle class in Syria who said... Uh, th this this regime has gone too far. We will now say to Assad, we will now say to Mubarak, we want no more of this. So they've made a choice at the time to say this has gone too far. They, some of them have made another choice then 
over the last 10 years to ascend and to accept the way things are. They are not protesting uh, if they're there, even if they haven't fled, if they haven't you know, died. They have, a, they have ascended to it. So is there a sort of an element of, of, of acceptance almost there, so, which is not a democratic thing by any means, but which, which goes to show that a part of the population will, will accept the, the regime under which they're living. They will, they will say this is better than risking a civil war. It's better than the alternative. Well, that's definitely true. Within authoritarian regimes, there are plenty of people that are actually happier with the status quo mm. because, sure. in fact, interestingly, uh, I went to Syria in 2010, and most people were very worried that if there was a fall of the leadership, that it could lead to Lebanon, yeah. the Lebanon civil war. Uh, so people were really, you know, saying that they were happy, you know, obviously not everybody was, but that some people were happy with the status quo, they're happy to turn, look the other way. There are many authoritarian regimes that provide all kinds of, maybe tax-free, uh, you know, they give out different benefits, they can sure. provide high housing. I mean, they're, they're very clever in pleasing the right people, keeping people happy, and there may be some genuine um, acceptance or even respect uh, for the leaders in authoritarian regimes. It would be misleading to say, oh, no, they just hate it. They all, they all hate living awesome. under this. It's just uh, picking, maybe going back to the question and saying, it's a normative question, right, to, to ask whether it's good or not good or better or less good. And I think uh, a normative question like that calls for the answer that says, depend for who and for whom, basically, are we, are we discussing whether it's better or not? Because obviously there are some parts of the population for whom it would be much better with an autocracy the autocrats themselves, the crony capitalist elites, and so on and so forth. And if we even expand it outside the, uh, the domestic borders of any nation states, then obviously also for decades, and I completely cherish Nasser's point, we have in Europe for decades been very happy with North African autocrats. They've been uh, doing our anti-terrorism policies with us, partially for us, and they've been doing uh, migration control policies for decades for us. Now, Libya is a problem because it can't do it anymore because there's no autocratic or democratic, by the way, government that can do it. So that's bad for us. And in the choice between not knowing whether we get something like Libya, Syria, collapse, and knowing we have this autocrat who's going to do that work for us, then for us, probably, there's some sort of at least short-term bet in saying this is a good thing for us. Now, the question is whether it's a long-term good bet for us to have autocrats all around us. And, uh, and that's at this point about them cooperating more closely than what they did in the past and them basically pushing us more, more intensely than what we've seen now. I think this is some of the sort of worrying trends that are different today than what they were maybe 10, 20 years ago, that there's a more sort of active push into the European uh, But what about, what about the people who are the young generations today? I mean, those people who went out into, into the streets with the Arab Spring 10 years ago and said, we want democracy, or at least we want what we believe to be democracy. If you go back to the Iraq war, the argument that was made by George W. Bush, of course, was to say, we cannot go on. He, he basically acknowledged what you just said. He just basically acknowledged to say, we've worked with these regimes, these dictatorships, autocrats for decades. It has not worked. This is going to, this is going to, to break down eventually, and we will, take, we will side with the people. That was the argument made sure. in, in favor of the Iraq war. This was the argument made to say, well, this is, the, this is the way history is moving. Today, the young generations in the Middle East, how do they see their future? Do they believe it's a democratic one? 
I think it all depends on where we are. If you take an, a country like Algeria right now, apparently mm. they do. I mm. mean, we have millions of young people, students, and even sort of supporting kids of students. It's come to that level now. Started with some unions and then sort of spread out, and it's vastly undercovered in the Western press, by the way. Say that to a journalist. Mm. And the, but there are massive, ongoing, has been that for almost three months now. Mm. Every Friday, millions of people. They've stopped the president from being re-elected, the dying president. And, and we, we have a massive pushback against autocracy there from the young generation, if you want to call it. Now, it's, I think it's transgenerational, actually, what's going mm, on. And mm. I think it was also in Egypt and in Tunisia and so on. My hunch is that, generally speaking, middle-class populations are skeptic towards transformation these days. They've seen Libya, they've mm. seen Syria, mm. they've seen Iraq, mm. they've seen Afghanistan. And like the list of sort of uh, failed uh, the transitions is sure. very long and sure. frightening. So there's a skepticism, but that doesn't mean that they like what they have. And right. I think that's a very important point. They're as skeptical about their own government. All right, back to the floor. Yes, please. Hi, I'm John. Uh, I have a question. Do you have an advice for the politician in countries where the democracies are sort of backsliding? So it seems like the way that politicians are posing, um, like in the US, for example, just fuels the party or the person who wants to go into a more autocratic direction. It seems like it's the wrong strategy they're having. Excellent question, Natasha. In terms of you talked about democratic backsliding, how is, is that the relevant term? Because if you took this discussion in the US, many Americans would say, well, this has got nothing to do with autocracy. It's got nothing to do with civil liberties. It's, it's simply democracy at work. No, and it's one of the biggest backsliders. Uh, it, you can't really backslide without the acquiescence of the public. And so the advice has to do with boosting civil society, as we had already talked about, and um, trying to deal with the, the fact that there's uh, so much false information out there in the media. Some of that has to do with regulating social media better, mm. um, regulating uh, a high concentration of ownership of media, which you know sometimes tries to only portray one particular point of view. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest issues with today is the, the falsehoods that are out there on social media. I mean, of course, there are also regimes out there that are pushing their agenda, their narratives mm. that are counter-democratic, but most people are getting their information from social media. Uh, if it's false, then they're just gonna believe that you know when Trump says tariffs are good for the US, that they're gonna think it's good for the US or these kind of things. I mean, it's a real a battle to get accurate information to people and for them to understand what their role can be in not just rolling over as, you know, norms and institutions are changed in ways, you know, that make the country more autocratic. All right, one more question, yes, please. Eric, um, maybe it's kind of the same question, but in four days we have the choice of backsliding or not. Um, in this country? Yes. Right. How do we avoid that? You're, you're thinking, talk about Hillary excess, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> not what you want. No, not, not quite. No, <laughs> How do we avoid the backslide in Denmark four days from now? We have the same possibility of tripping like US in a s simple way. Do you, do you see this, uh, uh, Rasmus, in, in Europe? I mean, we can talk about you know, the Danish case, or uh, even in, in Europe, this sort of democratic backsliding. I know you're not only a, 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 an expert on the Middle East, but when you look to Europe now, do you see the same argument? I mean, because you, you, you both talked about, um, you know, the population essentially saying, well, maybe we are well off with this. If you take Eastern Europe, 
If you take Hungary, if you take Poland, you can say, well, you have a, a little bit of a similar pattern. Countries where civil society and democratic institutions were not very well, uh, you know, had not a very uh, strong basis 30 years ago, where you might see something of the same happening. Is it, is it possible, I think this is what the question is about, is it possible that, that civil liberties, democracy as such, may be more superficial even in Western Europe? But at, at least it's, it's clear that they, they, are, they are more fragile than we had expected, right? Mm. Both in Western and classic old Eastern Europe. And I think the two trajectories are pretty distinct in the sense that what we see in Poland, Hungary, is a, like really auto, autocratic backslash. I'd be a little more hesitant. I think we have populism and the proto-nationalism, call it whatever you want, which is raging in, in classic Western Europe, if we may use that divide these days. It's obviously also a part. I think, I don't know of any autocracy that doesn't have a component of populism in it. So they go hand in hand, and, they, and in some cases, in other cases, I see more clear-cut populism. Mm. Some of the policies, the policies that comes out of the populist uh, proposals are clearly proto-autocratic in the sense that they're at least not democratic and human rights respecting. And I think Denmark has a problem with that. I think France has a problem with it. Italy, ravingly problem with that. So in classic Western Europe, yes, we do have some of these slide backs where we see human rights and good governance being sort of eroded less in its good governance practices and mm. more in its human rights practices. So I think it's a little bit uh, distinct what we see, but, but the pattern is there and it's a part of this broad but, I mean, acceptance. When, when yeah. you use the term, when you talk about human rights and the, and the way you study them or the way you, you even uh, uh, you know, negotiate them, I mean, it has this become controversial in a sense today that it wasn't 10 or 15 years ago, where 15 years ago, if we talked about human rights, we'd say, of course, it's evidently a good sure. thing. We believe in it. Everyone should have them. Everyone should move there. And today to say, well, I believe in human rights maybe has become a controversial statement. Sure. I mean, I've, I've spent the last two months basically sitting with human rights activists who work in, in Brussels, trying to sort of influence Brussels policies on human rights agenda. And they all come back with the same story and tell us that basically it's very difficult to convince the, the policymakers in Brussels that this is an important sort of uh, anchor to keep. Mm. And, and, and they said this is different. It wasn't like that 10 years ago. So there is a change in how the, you could say, the bureaucracy reacts to classic lobbying for human rights. And I think this pushes the, you can say, the, the agenda back to the entire room and to mm. the populations in general. We have to push the politicians to take this seriously because if we don't, then they don't take it seriously. And I think this is a moment that where, we, where we're discovering in Europe now that our politicians are not really taking human rights mm. slash democratic foundations as seriously as they did 10 years ago. Natasha, just to, to play the... the, the yeah. <laughs> Just to play, you know, the devil's advocate here for a moment, or maybe Steve Bannon's advocate, I don't know. What would you say to the argument that to counterpose, you know, democracy on one side, human rights, everything we like, with autocracy or everything we don't like, might be an old-fashioned uh, division? Maybe the, 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 the argument that will be made by, you know, populist politicians or protest politicians, whatever their critics would want to call them in the years to come, is to say, well, it's not about that, it's about the will of the people the will of the people can take many forms. And you will see, even in Western Europe, people will start arguing in favor of saying, we need stronger men, we need stronger regimes to do a lot of the good things we, we, we want done, to a lot of the necessary reforms. Maybe not just in terms of migration, it could be the environment, it could be other issues that demand stronger institutions, stronger presidents, and governments that are more willing to use power than they have been in the past. Right, but the, the type of populism we're seeing today, which 
by far is more overwhelmingly right-wing authoritarian populism isn't very democratic at all. They take advantage of uh, fears of people. They try to play on these fears, exacerbate these fears, and then polarize people, create in-groups and out-groups, people who are inclusive, included in groups, people who are excluded. Uh, and they aren't in, you know, including large parts of the population in mm. their plans and policies. They're you know, obviously ignoring human rights. And the, uh, the bigger problem with populists is they don't really like institutions. They see them as nuisances. They want to get rid of parties. Oh, parties are bad. You know, we, we don't want to you know, uh, have old politicians in here. We want to bring in new blood. We don't want people with any kind of experience. We don't want people that know what they're doing. We don't want judiciaries. They're a pain. They're getting in the way. You know, we want to move things quickly. They want direct connections with the people. They want to have this, um, this type of connection that you know, we think of this leader speaking from the balcony and that they are personally responsible for all of the successes and they have no blame for anything that goes wrong. Mm. So, I mean, populism and democracy doesn't really go hand in hand. In fact, usually populist leadership erodes at democracy in this slow, piecemeal fashion that we're seeing today. Now, time is almost up. We just have a, a moment or two left. Uh, thank you so much for the question. So we'll, I'll just have a, a final question for you. Know, I would just ask Rasmus and said, you know, has this become more controversial? and says it's in, indeed it has. To even say you're in favor of human rights is a controversial statement in a way today that it, it certainly wasn't 10 years ago. Um, do you think that's where we are heading as well here? In, so it's not just sort of the erosion of, of democracy or uh, uh, in other parts of the world. Will we see this debate if we are here in a couple of years' time? We will be debating some of these issues no longer talking about the Middle East or talking about the US, but talking about Europe, Western Europe. So do I think that we're in a temporary wave or a mm. long wave? I mean, I exactly. think that it is going to be an autocratic wave for a while, but it will go back, it will come back. I mean, it's, it's a wave, and that's why we refer to it as a wave. And the reason why I don't think this is going to be going on forever is because there's already a backlash to it, that people are becoming more educated, they're wising up, they're aware now of social media, they're aware that there are bots out there trying to control their thoughts and uh, play on their fears and targeting them. Uh, I think that as there is greater awareness of what's taking place and more people rejecting some of these forms of social media, we see that there will be... But a on the other hand, I mean, this was the argument, uh, similar to the argument that was made with the Arab Spring 10 years ago, to say, well, in new technology, the spread of information, the spread of ideas around the world is what is empowering this democratic wave. And of, of course, that stopped, right? Yeah, it, I think everybody thought that this was going to be a democratizing factor, social media, but it, and it does have some uh, democratizing elements in that it can help people organize, it mm. can share and spread sometimes good ideas and help form civil society groups, which are really important for democracy. But what we've seen is that autocrats have really taken advantage of social media and they have used it to, to sell their narratives about right. what's going on and to create confusion. So it, it, they don't necessarily need to convince everybody that uh, they are the best, but they need to create confusion about what's going on, and that's where the role of just all this false information that's out there plays. Awesome. Two short statements. I think like the, the first and perhaps most important thing for me when we look at global politics is even if autocrats tend to collaborate more closely, they also at each other's throat. Look mm. at Iran and Saudi Arabia. They're dying desperately to kill each other. And look at Turkey and uh, Saudi Arabia. Definitely not friends. So there's a lot of infighting between autocrats. So they're not this big sort of uh, one colossal which is working against democracies. They kill each other as much as they try to kill us. And I think that's a really important point on global politics. Now, the second point, 
domestic politics in Europe, I'm pretty positive and I'm pretty optimist. And I exactly share that point that, Nat that Natalie just made, that it's a question of waves, but it's also a question of uh, perception. We need to be aware of this in order to act against it. Right. And I do feel that we are actually becoming much more educated, much more aware that this is actually something that pushes us. Look at the last elections. Mm. I mean, why did people go vote? Maybe it was climate, but I think the other big uh, agenda that we had here was pushing back well, against the right Were you an optimist by party. nature before you became Critical an, optimist. An, an, an expert on the Middle East, or has being an expert on the Middle East <laughs> made you an optimist? I spent 20 years being in that region, so basically you need to remain optimist, right? <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Natasha and Rasmus, thank you so much. Sure. Thank you for the question. You have listened to a Heartland podcast. If you like what you just heard, please write us a review on iTunes, or even better, tell your friends that you heard this. We would really appreciate it. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.